This is Adam Puatic from the CRE podcast. I wanted to talk to you about the episode that you're about to hear. It was recorded just before COVID-19 became the omnipresent pandemic that it is now. This episode was recorded just at the end of February, and then it unfortunately got uh, trapped in our office, which was you know, responsibly shut down, as, as most other offices have done. But the content was trapped in our office. We have managed to free it, and we're going to release it now. It is great content. I want you to enjoy it. But I also want to set the context. This was recorded just before COVID-19 was getting going. And that is why some of the references might seem a little disjointed from the current reality. Enjoy. Welcome to the CRE Podcast. 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatik. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National, recording live at Real Capital. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Informa. Today, our guest is Peter Sweeney, the CFO of Smart Centers. Welcome, Peter. Thank you, gentlemen. Good afternoon, Aaron, and good afternoon, Adam. It's a pleasure and indeed an honor for me to be here with both of you two gentlemen this afternoon. So first, we always start with kind of your background. You're now the CFO of Smart Centers, but presumably you've had a little bit of a career before that. So I'm going to need to talk about kind of how you got into real estate and why, maybe why real estate to begin with. Sure. It's really simple. As a young accountant, I was with Price Waterhouse back in the mid to late 80s. And many of my clients back in those days were well-known, well-regarded, very reputable Canadian real estate companies. And so I had an opportunity to learn a little bit about the industry in those years and uh, was able to sort of take that limited learning, if you will, through the accounting side of things and eventually joined the Tridel organization, which back in the early and mid 90s was actually a publicly traded real estate company here in Canada. And I was the corporate controller there and we restructured that company. And when I left there, I joined a Canadian private company, a venerable, well-respected, pedigreed real estate services company called the J.J. Barnicky Limited Company that Joe Barnicky had started decades earlier. And I joined that company as a CFO in 1996, worked there until we eventually sold that company in 2007. I stayed on for several years thereafter to allow for the transformation of that company to be owned by a British public company. And then joined the Allied Properties Group, Allied Properties REIT, in 2010 as a CFO and joined Smart Centers, which at the time in 2014 when I joined was actually known as Callaway REIT. And we did a transformational transaction back in 2015. And we changed at the time the name of the REIT from Callaway to Smart or Smart Centers. So that's a little bit of the history. I have a curious question. And again, on the assumption that our listeners kind of skew a bit younger, that it may be in their first role or maybe their second role, what are the motivations to make a transition, to go from an allied properties REIT to a smart centers or Callaway at the time? Maybe it's not a sideways jump, but what are the things going through your head saying, this makes sense for me as a person? It's a great question. And I think it's no secret that the group at Allied under Michael Emery is a minimum, is a tremendously successful group. And I was always proud to be a member of that team. The one element, though, that I always aspired to do and continue to aspire to do with my career is to search for an opportunity to lead a company. And the opportunity seemed to avail itself back in 2014 when Callaway approached me because my initial reaction was I was more than content and happy to stay as a CFO at Allied. And when the opportunity to think about something larger 
and more expansive as a career opportunity for me came available at Callaway. I guess at the time, that's what attracted me the most to the opportunity. Every day I think about joining a new podcast, Aaron, but uh, <laughs> you better not. <laughs> I'm sure that virtually everybody in the audience could answer what Smart Centers is, but can you do the 30-second elevator pitch of, you know, kind of... In case Smart somebody's been living you, under yeah. a rock for the last 10 years, yeah. Well, let's hope they haven't. Yeah. But for those who need a refresher, in simple terms, Smart Centers REIT is now a $10 billion Canadian REIT that owns over 160 properties across Canada. We are in every single province across the country. Most of our assets are, however, located in both Ontario and Quebec. The REIT grew up as a retail focused REIT with Walmart as our anchor tenant. And we've been transforming over the last four or five years into a multidisciplined REIT that now focuses on development of high-rise residential rental, residential condominium development. We have joint ventures that we've now both announced and established with uh, Rivera and with Group Selection out of Quebec. We are also partnering with a group known as SmartStop out of the U.S. to do self-storage locations here in Canada. With them, we've also built and now completed our first two AAA office buildings in Vaughan. We expect to do more of that. And I think it's fair to say, as we think about the future, you know, the future for us goes in a lot of different directions. But our future principally will be focused on, at least for the near term, building an internal management team that will allow us to build, own, and manage a large group of apartments again, principally in Ontario and Quebec moving forward. So in 30 seconds or less, I hope I've been able to answer the elevator question. Well, the interesting thing there is you mentioned this has kind of been a four or five year transformation where you're jumping into, you know, Smart Stop is self-storage, Rivera, you have seniors. Agreement, of course, would be the multifamily. You mentioned both condos and apartments. You're talking about five different asset classes there. Any headaches coming with that? Tackling all these different avenues at once? It's a headache only in the sense that you have to recognize as an operator in real estate where your strengths are and at the same time concurrently recognize where your limitations might be. To the extent that you have those limitations, you go and seek partners. And so we find Rivera and SmartStop and our condominium partner, Center Court, and at least for now, our residential partner in Quebec for rental buildings is Jadco. Each of those companies and other partners like them with us uh, that we're doing other work with, Greenwind is, I think, a great example here in Toronto as well. They're best in class in their respective disciplines. And we didn't make the decisions to enter into those arrangements overnight. Those arrangements took an enormous amount of time and diligence and reflection, frankly, because we spoke to many different groups in each of those areas before we made final decisions on which of the groups we much preferred to do business with. So for us, it's an acknowledgement, at least coming out of the gate, that we have some limitations inherently in each of those areas and looking for companies that we think at least can best help us develop platforms in those areas. How much of the decision-making is financial versus relationship? People that you like to do business with, if you're making these types of partnerships, they're not, one, like you said, you don't come to the decision lightly. Two, I'm sure you're hoping they're long-term. So you have to be working with people that you like to work with because this is a long-term plan. Is that come into it or is it strictly pipeline financial strength of those partners? It's a, maybe a function of all of the above and perhaps more criteria or factors. Keep in mind, Smart Centers as a company developed its initial partnership with Walmart well over 20 years ago and learned to be, I would suggest, a very good partner with and for Walmart over the decades. And so we think we make very good partners. And we think also that the pedigree of the groups that we've chosen reflects the pedigree of the partners that we've chosen. So 
as I said earlier, those decisions haven't been made lightly mm-hmm. and they haven't been made overnight. And, you know, the financial success or strength of each of those companies is important. Of course, yeah. But in fairness, it's not the only factor. So when you think about currently who our partners are, Jadco is a well-respected company operating in Quebec. It's a private real estate development and management company that perhaps people outside of Quebec have never even heard of. Similarly, you know, when you think about Greenwind, it's well-respected and has a long track record of success here in Toronto. But when you go outside of the GTA, perhaps it's not as well-known. And similarly, companies like Fieldgate, who we're partnering with on a townhouse development here and again in Toronto, are probably or is probably a well-respected company in Toronto, but is not generally well-known outside of the city. And, you know, each of them have strong balance sheets, but I think the more important component of the relationship is our willingness and our partner's willingness to recognize that communication and transparency ultimately is key for the success of these relationships. I think that overshadows the financial strength because, you know, the financial side, we can always accommodate with any partner given the size of the REIT. So for us, it's the ability to believe that our partners are being open, transparent, and forthcoming and forthright with us and reciprocally our willingness to do the same. And how much of your development pipeline would revolve around the excess land associated with parking lots that have benefited so many retail owners? It's a great question. So when you think about the development initiatives that we're embarking upon, we announced back in September that our current list, at least six months ago in September, represented a total of 256 projects that would be expected to be built on 94 of our existing properties. And keep in mind, none of those 256 projects required us to be buying any land. That's convenient. It sure is. And it's appropriate given land prices. Now, having said that, that doesn't dissuade us or mean that we're not prepared to think about acquisitions of properties. And in that regard, you know, we've recently announced the acquisition of a high-rise rental development initiative here in Toronto on Beloyal Street. We announced several months ago a similar initiative with Greenwind in Barrie. And we've got, you know, similar initiatives that we've announced with our partner Rivera for some retirement home developments that they had previously owned and we've now bought into. So the reality is the 256 initiatives that we announced six months ago are on properties that we own and had exclusively but it hasn't stopped us thinking about developing on properties that we would prefer or like to own as well. So that 256 number, no doubt, is much higher today than it was six months ago when we announced it. We just haven't had a chance to really retally that number going forward. You know, along the same vein of one of Adam's questions about, you know, I think you've historically been sort of Walmart anchored retail centric, and now you're you're branching off into other asset classes. What's the experience been like acquiring the skill sets and the knowledge base needed to make the decisions on more than just what your core business used to be? Yeah, it's a good question. The benefit and one of the perhaps competitive strengths of the Smart Center's team is the sort of soup to nuts, cradle to grave development platform that the public company, the REIT, purchased in 2015 when we purchased the Smart Center's platform in May of 2015. And literally overnight, 200 professionals joined the REIT's side of the fence to do development. And historically speaking, prior to that, The one limitation, or the primary limitation at least, that the REIT had was its inability to develop off its own balance sheet. And so with that one transaction in May, we were able to move from a company that owned and managed real estate to a company that was now able to develop real estate as well. So the reality is many of those people who 
have grown up in the planning and development world had spent 20 plus years prior to this time working on Walmart anchored shopping centers. The only reason that the private company had at least not developed into the residential field or in some of the other fields that we've now embarked upon is principally because of time. The group was so busy and consumed with the Walmart-based initiatives that they just didn't have the time to dedicate to other initiatives. And I say that, think about it this way. Over a 14-year consecutive period in Canada, the private company was opening once every three weeks a new Walmart anchored shopping center. And when I say say that again, just reiterate that. Think about it because it's, (laughs) you have to digest this to really understand the strength of this team over a 14 year period consecutively, every three weeks during that timeframe, the development team was opening a new Walmart anchored shopping center. So when I say opening, that means that that same team had taken a piece of land from its former use, brought it through the entitlement and development phases leased it not only to Walmart, but to many other retail users who would occupy the site as well, constructed the site and did all the final analysis and requirements to allow tenancy to take place. And these shopping centers are typically three to 600,000 square feet in size. So they're not small, but just imagine every three weeks for 14 consecutive years, one of these openings somewhere in Canada. That's what this team was focused on. And that's why in fairness, this same team didn't have time to focus on some of the initiatives that they're focused on now. So I think it's fair to say, so now that same team being focused on all the other disciplines are using their skills, using some of the experience and some of the skills to allow for planning of these other initiatives that we're now embarking upon. I just think of the myriad of different, you know, zoning and bylaw and municipal issues you have to deal with for all those locations and your head spins at the execution on that. It's and, and, And when you think about it now, it's actually... I'm not going to say it's simple, but when you think about the reception that they often had in communities across Canada that couldn't spell Walmart at the time and perhaps were dissuaded by the idea of having a Walmart in their backyard. So it's fair to say that the team met with tremendous resistance in many cases over that time frame when they were going through the initial planning stages. And now going through sort of the upgrade or enhancement process on many of those properties now across Canada the same members of the team are meeting with similar members or the same members of the administrative and councils in those municipalities across the country with whom they had dealt with over the last 20 years. And I think it's fair to say, generally speaking, there's always going to be exceptions, but generally speaking, Canadian municipalities are welcoming the idea of intensifying these shopping center sites with multi-purpose use. What's your current production rate of Walmart's? It's fair to say Walmart's, at least for now, they've scaled back their level of store growth in Canada. They have approximately 400 stores in Canada. I think they continue to grow. Their business at least continues to grow enormously in Canada on a same store basis. They continue to focus on growth of their complement of groceries in Canada. And I think they aspire to continue to focus in that area. But Canada Um, is a finite market. Well, we have a limited population and they've spent the last 20 plus years now growing in this marketplace, but they continue to evolve. And it's no secret Walmart and other Large retailers in our portfolio and other retail portfolios in Canada continue to focus on e-commerce strategies and omni-channel strategies that allow them to reach their customers in many ways other than just bricks and mortar. And Walmart is not a neophyte to that arena. And they intend, I think it's fair to say, to compete 
in that arena with their stores complementing their omni-channel strategies for a long, long time to come. Any interest in participating in the omni-channel you know, on the industrial front? It's a good question. I mean, we've mused about it. I think it's fair to say, and we see an opportunity in some cases for us to convert some of our locations to centers for perhaps part of the delivery process, maybe the last mile or last mile and a half part of the process that is necessary in the e-commerce world. But at least for now, we haven't formally announced any initiatives in that regard. Do you see a change in your strategy or a change in strategy for not necessarily the Walmart of course, the Walmart is the anchor, but what about the use of some of the auxiliary sites, the other tenants are in your plazas? Is that changing? Is the, I guess what I'm trying to say is the profile of those tenants changing over time? In some respects, it is. We were fortunate that in our portfolio of properties across Canada, we had only two Target stores. And as I think we all know, several years ago after at least one false start, Target decided it was appropriate to shutter their Canadian initiative. And so for us, it didn't mean a huge amount of leakage, financial leakage. It meant that two stores would have to be repurposed. Other than that, you know, we've last year, for example, we had Payless leave us and we had another company, Bombay Embowering, leave us. In so many ways, that's just the natural evolution and attrition in the retail environment, as it would be, by the way, in the office environment or in the industrial environment or tenants even in rental buildings do decide to leave. And the average stay, give or take, in some municipalities in this country in a rental building is less than four years now. So for us, the movement of tenants in or tenants out is, again, a natural evolution of retail real estate. We do, however, see an enhanced use in our properties of service-based industries, whether that's medical, dental, or other similar service-based initiatives. We are seeing more and more of those needs come to our properties. As lenders, we have to ask, all these growth plans, all these ethic classes, how do you plan on funding this? So when you look at you know, what we've announced publicly, we've announced that over the next five to 10 years, we expect to grow our balance sheet that currently has a $10 billion number associated with it to reflect, at least at our share, another $5.5 billion worth of investment. And as you might imagine, to grow a balance sheet that's already large by 50% over a relatively short period of time is going to require an enormous amount of capital from many, many groups. We are, however, very conservative in our perspective on managing our balance sheet. So in December of last year, we were fortunate to have the DBRS rating agency upgrade our credit rating to triple B high, which essentially means that we're able to borrow on an unsecured basis for at lower interest rates than we otherwise might. And, you know, I think it's fair to say that the primary reason that DBRS was prepared to upgrade our credit rating was because they saw that focus on conservatism in our management of our credit. So that's not going to change. We've confirmed with our constituent investors and debenture holders that we don't expect that to change, that our management team has experienced a period in Canada in the early 90s when real estate was a four-letter word, so to speak, and many venerable Canadian companies imploded because of having way too much debt on their balance sheet. So we're certainly familiar with some of the tragic outcomes of having an overburdened and overlevered balance sheet. And so it's fair to say as well that we never intend to expose our unit holders and other constituent participants in our business to that type of risk. So what does that mean? It means that we're going to model our development plans based on how we can do them with partners on a gradual basis. It also means that, you know, to the extent that interest rates get too high or our debt levels get too high, that we'll think of other strategies. We'll either bring in other partners or maybe we'll sell assets or maybe we'll just decide that 
it's not appropriate to do a certain development at a certain time. We'll pull back in that regard. The point is, we got lots of opportunity to manage the initiatives that we're embarking upon. And so, you know, if nothing else, our unit holders should understand and believe strongly that, at least in Smart Center's case, we'll never expose them to the risk of overgearing a balance sheet. So, you know, from a financing perspective, what we're seeing today is we're seeing a combination of debt and equity. Our overall uh, debt level is about 42, just over 42%. We're comfortable with that level. We're actually comfortable even at a higher level because the cash flow of the business is such that it washes its own face, as I like to say. And what that means is that the core business of retail, for us at least, the cash flow that's generated from that business allows us to pay not only the mortgage interest payments that are required, but it also allows us to pay our distributions. And uniquely, it also allows us to pay the principal amortization components to our mortgages. So we have a core business that effectively is self-sustaining, which allows us then to embark upon the development initiatives that we've described earlier on a case-by-case basis and fund them on whatever basis we think is appropriate, again, managing a balance sheet. And so what we're also finding is the properties that we own, these 94 properties upon which we intend to build 256 projects, those properties have an enormous amount of unrecorded value inherent in those properties. Keep in mind, they were in many cases bought 10 or some cases 20 years ago. And so the valuations or the costs at least that we paid for those properties relative to today's values, that difference, that delta, that lift in value is enormous. You know, people have asked us about valuing those properties for accounting purposes, because in Canada these days, we all subscribe to an IFRS-based process of fair valuing our assets. The reality, however, is that until now, we've taken the approach that the appropriate basis for valuation of our properties is based on income in place. Mm. So you can imagine we've got a property that's yielding income in place of, just to pick a number, $25 million per year. And if we cap that at a you know, 5 or 6% level, that's what generates the value that eventually falls into our balance sheet. However, the value of that property on a highest and best use basis may not be to continue to use it as an income-producing property. There's a lot of parking lot there. An enormous amount. So I think the last count... Do you, how many parking stalls do you own? <laughs> I don't know, we've got 3,000 plus acres of parking across Canada. That's in, insane. Hopefully less 10 years from now, yeah. Just imagine 3,000 acres all in one plot of just parking. (laughs) So I've got a couple of golfers around the tailors. Just imagine the average size of a golf course is, I think, 200 acres. When you think about 3,000 acres of parking lots, you could build at least 15 golf courses on the parking fields that we own across Canada. Wow. And, yeah. <laughs> it's fun to think about, eh? So it just gives you a sense as to the scale of development that is in front it's of us. It's available, yeah, if you can imagine. The untapped land that is effectively free if you look at it that way. Let's keep going on that train of thought. Sorry, I got you distracted on the parking lots, but on capital and different sources of capital, you mentioned unsecured. What other sources of capital are you using to kind of get to that next level of $15 billion? You know, for us, at least for now, when we think about debt, we've got really three levers to play on, maybe four, but We've strategically decided a few years ago that our balance sheet at the time had an abundance of overweighted secured debt. So if we were to step back in time about two years ago and you were to look at our capital structure, you would have seen essentially two-thirds of our debt being secured and one-third of our debt being unsecured. So we consciously and deliberately made a decision to try to reverse that order such that at some point in time, we would allow the balance sheet to reflect about two-thirds of unsecured debt and one-third or less 
of secured debt. Two primary reasons. First one being we thought that it would be appropriate for a REIT of our size to be able to source more unsecured debt in the bond market, if for no other reason other than the convenience and simplicity of being able to do that. Number two, it availed us also to be able to focus more on finding secure debt for developments. And so when you look at our balance sheet today, as of Q4 of this 2019 year past, we're proud to say that two-thirds of our debt is now unsecured and one-third of our debt is secured. And when I talk about secured versus, well, secured mortgages anyway, is principally conventional mortgages. And what we've been doing is as these mortgages have been maturing over the last couple of years, as they've matured, we've repaid them and we've sourced financing through the unsecured channels to repay them. And we see that continuing. So in a perfect world, we would continue to grow the unsecured part of our debt channel and the secured side would continue to diminish, at least conventionally. However, we're going to continue to grow the secured side for construction and project related And why is that? Why not use the unsecured market for your construction and development debt? Just flexibility or is it kind of deployment of that debt, whereas unsecured, you can't just kind of draw on it as you need it? Or maybe you can, maybe talk that through. Yeah, we can. The simple answer is if we were doing these projects on our own, so if we were the 100% owner of all of these initiatives that we're embarking upon, it probably would make sense for us to think about doing most of it on an unsecured basis. Again, because of the convenience and simplicity of using unsecured debt or our lines of credit. However, when you introduce partners, and you know, we talked about the partnership situations earlier, when you introduce partners so that they're different needs, um, we think it's appropriate that the REIT not expose itself to having too many guarantees outstanding. So you'll typically find with us that our guarantees are limited to the REIT's interest in a respective property, which means that our partners have to sort of avail themselves and partner with us on the financing initiatives. And so they too are at risk. So that's the primary reason for going the secured route because it's available capital, it's available across the country. Our partners, as I mentioned, are strong, experienced partners and they're used to having project-related debt in place as they develop properties on their own. And so it just makes perhaps functional sense for us to continue to do that. Are you contemplating, particularly with maybe some of your multifamily and retirement home development projects to take an insured mortgage? We are. That's a great question. So Adam sitting across the table from me, was at a meeting at our shop a few months ago now where we spoke to he and his colleagues about the idea of thinking at least about CMHC-related financing for our residential rental initiatives. And, you know, we're now starting to think more seriously about some of the retirement home initiatives as well. So we're not there yet. Our first rental residential project is expected to be completed in a couple of months in Montreal. And our partner there is JADCO, and no doubt we'll have to have a discussion of consequence with them in the not-too-distant future. Sounds like it's time for another meeting. Concerning <laughs> CMHC financing, we do have a number of new high-rise initiatives that we plan to embark upon this year and for many years to come. And it's, I think it's fair to say for many of those that we have partners with, we would envision CMHC we're, financing. We're at real capital, so I don't think this is too far into the depths. You must know, or hopefully you do, and I should know and I don't. What is the delta between what you can pay on the unsecured versus what you would get on a CMHC insured side? Like, is it much different? I mean, maybe it's not apples to apples. I can do the math for you, I guess. CMHC insured is typically sort of Canada's plus 100. Are you raising at that same level on the unsecured? Or do you pay the premium on the unsecured simply for the flexibility and the simplicity of access to that capital? So currently, and you know, these things change in a heartbeat, but currently, you know, the read is looking at when we think about at least 10-year money on an unsecured basis, we're looking in the 
we think at least for now, 160 to 170 range over the bonds. And again, that could change. And if CMHC financing is closer to 100 basis points over, then yeah, clearly... Yeah, it's, it's 1 to 110, I think, right now. I mean, it changes, there, of course. Premium, yeah. And there's been some bond rally today, so I don't even know where it is at this particular moment. But however, when you're putting that 10-year mortgage on that property, it's yep. restricting you from certain flexibilities you may want. If you, you know, disposing that asset becomes more challenging, repatriating equity to that asset becomes more challenging. So I get that, you know, there is a premium to an attractiveness to the unsecured, even if it is sort of 50, 40 basis points. It is, but it would only be done, I suspect, for now at least, on properties that we own outright. Again, keep in mind, many of these properties we expect and will have partners on, and it's those properties that uh, will be a focus for CMHC-related initiatives. We've talked about the past of Smart Centers, you know, where you are now. What do you see for your vision for the company for the next five to 10 years or your role as a leader in that company? You know, that's a great question, Adam. You know, the reality for us is that we're going to be continuing to focus on you know, our core complement of initiatives, which is to continue to manage a large portfolio of shopping centers, as we've done now for many years, and continue to be able to allow our occupancy rates to remain at industry high levels. And concurrent with sort of that focus, we envision, you know, this development pipeline continuing to develop and grow. And so for us, availability of capital is key. Great partners is paramount. And the ability to predict with some level of precision when you're going to be able to start a project, how long it's going to be able to take to build that project, and the expected yield or returns that that project will generate is monumentally important. And don't dismiss the reality that notwithstanding all the euphoria that's inherent in the market these days about development across Canada, all of this comes with an assumption that these things are going to be profitable that they're going to generate an economic return on invested capital. So we hope that our brethren in the industry go through a rigorous and disciplined process when they're establishing their performance to allow for the abundance of time and the abundance of delays or the expectation for delays in both time and procurement. We hope that everyone doing this kind of work across Canada also provides for contingencies, for interest rate increases, for cost increases, for challenges in top-line movement, etc. So because of our pedigree, maybe, and because of our experience, it's fair to say that our board expects us to be conservative in those estimates. And almost to a fault, we've turned away many, many opportunities because they just didn't meet a rigorous level of expectations, whether it's economics or whether it's timing or maybe a combination of the two. And so My final comment maybe is to your listening audience that as you think about development and when you think about development companies in Canada, we hope that all of those development companies have taken a conservative approach to planning their projects because at some point the world will change. And I know we're enjoying this level of euphoria these days with the availability of capital and low interest rates, et cetera, but that won't always be the case. And at some point, The pendulum, physics has told us, you know, the pendulum will swing against us. And it's in those time frames that, you know, when you're conservative in your estimates and your budgeting, you're able to be able to tell your shareholders and your your constituent unit holders, you did plan for that rainy day and that that rainy day has now come and that, you know, you're going to be able to work through it without having too many hiccups. I hate to sort of end on a negative note, and that's not intended to be a negative note. It's meant to be sort of a note of maybe experience speaking and giving everyone sort of a dose of reality that at some point, Things do move against us and we have to be 
prepared for those eventualities. I hear just cautious optimism, right? You're really just saying you have to be prepared for the worst, but plan for the best. I mean, is that kind of a way I think that's probably a nice way of describing it. Understand your projects and don't bite off more than you can chew. You're talking to a couple of lenders, so we're always thinking downside. So (laughs) we like to hear that from a developer that it's not just guns blazing nonstop. He knows his audience. That's right. That's right. That's right. Well, thanks very much, Peter. This has been a wonderful conversation. We really appreciate you coming on. Thanks to First National, of course, for powering the podcast. And thanks to Informa for hosting us here at the Real Capital Forum. Well, thank you, gentlemen. And thank you also to First National for allowing us the opportunity to speak with you today. And also to our event sponsor, Informa, for allowing me to sort of share my thoughts with both of you two august gentlemen this morning. Great. Thanks, Peter. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.